0: The patented Pod Shatter Reduction Technology Canola Hybrids from InVigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF Seed Advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on
1: Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Hello everyone and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us this day after Christmas. Hope you had a wonderful holiday yesterday and we hope your entire holiday season will be a very good one and a very safe one as well. We're taking some time to look back over the stories that we've been covering lately, these last few days, especially leading into the Christmas break, a flurry of activity in Washington, D.C. on the trade front, on the spending front, tax credits, so much going on for biofuels and agriculture in general. And, of course, uh, the big story throughout this challenging 2019, the big story has been about trade issues, and the biggest of them all – not that USMCA is not important, but certainly is important, and we're well on our way now to getting a USMCA pass. But the even bigger issue has been China and the ongoing trade war with China. And finally, some in an up-and-down year where we've had good news, bad news, optimism, pessimism, uh, it now looks positive towards getting something done at least in a phase one trade deal but nothing's final but based on what we know it looks positive we talked with jake parker recently he's senior vice president for the u.s china business council and i asked him what's in this package
2: So what's in the package now is we have some commitments on intellectual property, technology transfer, the part that's very important to your listeners, agriculture, which I think was one of the big winners in the agreement, financial services liberalization on China's side. There's going to be some focus on currency uh, manipulation and ensuring that there's stability there going forward. Then there's a big component on expanding trade. This is the purchases piece that we've heard about.
1: Now, what can you tell us there? A lot of speculation about what they'll be purchasing.
2: Yeah, that's right. So when we've looked at the U.S., so there is a bit of a a difference between what the U.S. has announced and what we've seen the Chinese announce. On the U.S. side, um, there's a focus both on structural removal of non-tariff barriers in China, which prohibits certain U.S. agricultural products from entering the market. What the U.S. government has told us is that that covers seafood products, meat, poultry, rice, dairy, infant formula, horticultural products, animal feed, feed additives, pet food and products of agriculture biotechnology, which as you know, biotech event approvals in China have been delayed, which has limited some of the scope of the agricultural foodstuffs that can be exported to China. Unfortunately, what we haven't seen is the same level of detail from the Chinese side. What the Chinese have focused on is the U.S. import ban on uh, poultry has been lifted. They've talked about selling additional pears, oranges, and dates into the U.S. market. They haven't indicated that they would do additional purchases of US agricultural products including pork, poultry, wheat, corn and rice, but they haven't talked in the same granularity about the purchase numbers that the US has. As as you and your listeners are probably aware, uh, the US has announced 200 billion in purchases over the 2017 numbers. Um, over a two-year period so a big part of that would have to be agricultural products so we haven't seen the Chinese uh, echo that sentiment so we're we're hopeful for additional details in the weeks uh, ahead
1: we're talking with Jake Parker Senior Vice President of the US China Business Council Jake how concerned or skeptical should we be about China living up to uh, the agreement once it is signed
2: I think that that's a, a fair question, and ultimately the U.S. government and the Chinese have agreed to a dispute resolution mechanism, or, or what you might call an enforcement mechanism, that would allow for each side to raise issues at the working level, that could then be escalated to the deputies level, that would then be escalated to the principal's level, the Ambassador Lighthizer, Secretary Mnuchin, Vice Premier Liu He, and that can be accelerated very quickly. So if one side feels the other side is not implementing faithfully on their commitments, then that side can raise it quickly, and if it's still not addressed and there's punitive action that can be taken. What we've heard from the U.S. side is this would be proportionate, so it would hopefully limit any kind of full-scale new tariff implementation across the board and would hopefully allow for very specific responses when challenges arise
1: a lot of excitement on the agricultural side uh, for this deal as you look at it overall from what you can see now does it look like a good deal
2: look I'd say it this way this as a deal puts a floor under the further deterioration of the bilateral relationship it hits pause on the December 15 tariffs that were scheduled to go into effect across a number of significant consumer products uh, it, it also allows the two sides to return to a more constructive engaged environment it's going to lead to some purchases of us agriculture and other goods all of that is positive it doesn't address everything and frankly we're going to need to see the text agreed to by both parties in English and Chinese before we assess the full scope. Uh, But I would say that we're cautiously optimistic that this is going in the right direction and allows the two sides to now build confidence as they go into discussing the more difficult structural issues in the relationship in phase two and beyond.
1: Obviously, time will tell and it'll take some time, but do you think what has happened this past year with this trade war, does it have long-lasting implications when it comes to global trade?
2: It does. It's a big question, and it's difficult to understand the full ripples of this over the medium and long term. But I think one thing that we can likely assume is that regardless of who the next president is, that it will be extremely difficult for that person to resist the temptation of utilizing tariffs in some way in the future the genius somehow has, has unfortunately escaped the bottle. Uh, I think that there's also been more of a focus in this administration on a bilateral mechanism and taken some of the, the wind out of the multilateral institution sales. Uh, that is also likely to have an impact on future negotiations in the future. So there are some concerning trends that have emerged uh, because of the U.S.-China bilateral trade conflict that are likely to resonate for, for years, decades to come.
1: It often comes down to this in in these kind of negotiations, Um, but is there enough in this deal, as you see it now, for both sides to to claim a victory?
2: It's difficult to know for sure until we see the specific details written in text. Um, But from what we've seen, uh, that's part of the problem, actually, why we haven't seen as much detail on the Chinese side, because, frankly, they're being asked to do more because the U.S. market is... Uh, comparatively more open than the chinese market uh, which is one of the reasons why perhaps they've they've shared less of the detail with their domestic audience so they don't appear like they're looking like they're capitulating to the united states or signing an unequal treaty something that they're very sensitive to in the china market so so there are things here that the chinese want as well as you saw we've we've granted market access for chinese poultry imports we've got catfish imports that are now allowed from China as well. Uh, So there are successes for them, but it's definitely a little bit more on uh, the U.S. side in terms of balance.
1: And you think ethanol will be a big part of this?
2: We we sure hope so, ethanol and then DDG uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And when we talk to folks that are involved in the negotiations, they do indicate that this is one of their top priorities. We haven't seen ethanol announced in the initial fact sheet Uh, but to meet the kind of numbers that the U.S. and China are talking about, ethanol would be a a big, important part of that, so so we're certainly hopeful.
1: That's Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, sir. All right, stay with us. Much more to come here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
3: Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. But they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
1: Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We continue to take a look at the monthly. Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer numbers and now we have the November numbers to look at and it looks like Farmer sentiment is up or was up in November. Here to give us those numbers is Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist. Michael, thanks for joining us. So we saw a little jump in November?
4: Yes, we definitely did. Uh, the index jumped from 136 to 153 but what was particularly interesting is we saw a rather large jump in the index of current conditions uh, when we've spoken in the past, I've always indicated that the index of future expectations was higher than the index of current conditions in November. They're the same index number. And so I think that's very interesting that uh, uh, the producers in, in November, at least, were just as optimistic short term as they are in the long term.
1: Uh, well, I wonder if the numbers would were swayed by whether or not a farmer had the harvest done at the time.
4: I, I think there was a, there. I think the harvest had probably had something to do with it. I think in the eastern corn belt where I'm I'm located, I think the harvest was a pleasant surprise. I think yields were a little stronger than what people were anticipating, and so I think that certainly helped, uh, particularly in the eastern corn belt. Um, and, and so, yeah, certainly those that uh, still have and still have some crops in the in the field probably weren't as optimistic as those that are done.
1: Well, we've seen some up and down throughout the year. How do the November numbers compare with uh, earlier in the year?
4: It it really has been quite variable this year, but the the index now is as high as what it was in July uh, before that August crop report. Uh, And in July, uh, you'll remember that corn futures rose above 450, and so that's saying quite a bit. Uh, But, but, uh, uh, you know, in mid-November, uh, the corn and soybean futures are a little stronger, particularly soybeans, than what they are now. And so it will be interesting to see what the numbers look like in December uh, compared to November.
1: Yeah, the December numbers, uh, when we have those, um, well, and also then you'll have the numbers for the entire year. It'll be an interesting uh, look back through the, through the year because 2019 was such a challenging year.
4: Yeah, definitely. And uh you know, certainly given given the challenging year that we had, it, it's it's a bit surprising that the index was as strong as it was in November. But but like I said, I do think there's some people that uh, were were somewhat surprised uh by how well the the, uh, the harvest was in two thousand nineteen and and uh, we needed a fall that was fairly cooperative and at least in the Corn Belt we had that. Or in the Eastern yes. Corn Belt we had that.
1: Yeah, some got it, some some didn't. Obviously, we're talking with the Purdue yeah. Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer, talking about the November numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. All right, you always ask them about farmland values and their views. What did they say in November?
4: Well, the the farmland values, we ask a question looking at farmland values twelve months from now and five years from now, and they're certainly they're certainly more optimistic that there's going to be price increases of, of five years from now. But interestingly enough, the percent that thought there was going to be increases uh, in the next 12 months rose to 16 percent. Uh, that compares to 11 percent that thought farmland values were going to decline uh, in the next year. And so there's more optimism uh, regarding farmland prices in the next year than there has been for quite some time. Uh, I thought that was quite, bit, quite interesting, and, and certainly that's consistent uh, with the fact that the index of current conditions uh, improved.
1: As the trade war with China has drug on, and we've had lots of ups and downs there, but it seems like in talking with you each month that the farmers have been fairly optimistic on on this getting resolved favorably uh, throughout the year, even during some low times that uh, they still seem fairly optimistic.
4: Yeah, so we've asked people point blank whether the, whether the trade dispute is going to eventually uh, be advantageous. Uh, To to U.S. agriculture, it's worth a slightly different than that, but that's the essence of the question. And anywhere from 75 to 80 percent indicate that in the long term, this is going to be beneficial uh, to U.S. agriculture. That number reached 80 percent in November, and so it can't consistent uh, with with the with the higher index. Probably more interestingly, though, we ask another question: whether this trade dispute will be settled soon, and uh, over. Over 50% indicated in November that they thought it was going to be settled soon. And if we we think back in November, there was some there was some uh, rumors uh, that there was some progress being made uh, on the, with the trade dispute. And I think that that uh, that drove that answer, but it also improved optimism.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, depending on the timing, right? To ask the question if the rumors that day were more positive than than <laughs> they are at other times, uh, the timing was key on that one.
4: Definitely.
1: All right. I, I thought a very interesting question, and I'm anxious to see the results here. Uh, you ask, how worried are you, if at all, about climate change? What did farmers say?
4: Quite a few uh, Quite a few of the farmers were not particularly worried about climate change. In fact, 47, 47% indicated they, they were not worried at all. Another 31% uh, thought they were not too worried. And so uh, they weren't particularly worried about, about, about climate change per se, but we ask that in a fairly generic sense. Um, you know, if you, if you ask him questions about uh, 2019 being repeated, something a little bit more specific, uh, certainly that would have been, been a different answer. And I think we, we, we're going to try to dig into this a little deeper. I think one of the things going on here is there's a lot of confidence that with different management practices and, and with with innovation, with technology, uh, you know, we can overcome any problems that we... That, that problems that may occur uh, due to climate change. And so in the in the future, we're going to try to dig into that a, a little bit deeper. But I know uh, in other surveys, they've, they've found that, uh, that people are confident that we'll be able to respond uh, to changes in the
1: climate. Well, kind of going along with that, I think you did ask uh, if they've made any changes in their operations because of climate change.
4: Yes, we did ask a question related to that. It wasn't specific to... Uh, to To specific management practices or or certain technologies which we will we will eventually ask those questions but twenty two percent said already they've made some changes in their operation. We would like to little dig a little deeper uh, as you know there's been a tremendous increase in tile drainage, uh, for example in in the corn belt we'd like to ask a question related to tile drainage uh, you know pivots uh, there's been more pivots since two thousand and twelve drought, and so we'd like to dig into that a little, little deeper and and look at specific practices, specific technologies that they may have adopted, uh, you know, due to due to uh, climate change worries.
1: I think this is going to be interesting to monitor moving forward because it's pretty obvious this is going to be a a big discussion point uh, nationally as well as globally, and eventually the impacts of that discussion will come back on agriculture.
4: Definitely, and we'd like to. We'd also like to. Ask a question down the road, just related to uncertainty in general. Um, you know, one of the things that one of the things we've talked about in the past is the fact that the barometer has been quite variable. Uh, and so, we'd like to dig in a little deeper, uh, you know, uh, and ask some questions related to uncertainty, and then track that over time. And so, as the uncertainty diminishes a little bit, how does that impact? How does that impact optimism? And, and the reason why I'm saying that in terms of climate change, is climate change is just one of those things. That's probably adding to long-term uncertainty.
1: Yeah, it's interesting uh, when you add questions like climate change into the survey because that uh, you kind of go with, uh, you look at some of the issues that are impacting agriculture now and into the future, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, so you do add these questions as you go along uh, with the survey.
4: Yes, and, and we, we also would like to ask some questions, and this is a little harder to pinpoint exactly what to ask, We'd like to ask some questions about sustainability. Uh, a lot of agribusinesses have have, have, have either started programs or are thinking about starting programs, uh, looking at sustainability, you know, to, to try to encourage certain practices. And so we we would like to start asking similar questions like that, uh, along with the other questions that we ask. Well, I always think it makes it makes it a little more interesting when we're talking to talking to you guys and and I uh, am uh, you know, talking to farm farm and farms and agribusinesses to. They kind of have some different questions.
1: Yeah, and but, questions but like all bro- related.
4: To, it's all related to this long-term right. uncertainty. I think that's a topic we really want to delve into.
1: And questions like broadband access and those kind of issues very much yeah, impact yeah. A, a farmer's operations and and how they view uh, the future for their operations.
4: Definitely, and that broadband one would be a really good one to ask because you know obviously with the technologies that that were that were adopted, we need we need high-speed internet.
1: For sure, and I know some groups have been doing some of that survey work and and, and seeing you know what the access availability is to farmers and uh, the impact it's having on farmers not being able to access it and the things they're not being able to do and use the technology that's available to them. So, yeah, that'll be a, yeah. a big issue moving forward as well. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Always interesting to look at these numbers month to month, and the next time we talk, we'll be able to look at the whole year of 2019. Look forward to that. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. All right. Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, with the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer showing that farmer sentiment was up in November. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
3: The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field, a variety built to work in your soil type and conditions, with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop—that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field, a variety built to work in your soil type and conditions, with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop—that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF Seed Advisor. Always read and follow label directions.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on
1: Agriculture.
0: Now back to Mike Adams.
1: And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture this day after Christmas. The biodiesel industry got a real Christmas gift right before the uh, the holidays when Congress passed the tax extenders package as part of the spending bill, it included the biodiesel tax credit. I talked about it with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board.
0: Yeah, Mike, glad to be with you. I was, I was thinking about that myself, how many times you and I have talked over the course of the last few months about the effort and the work that the industry was putting in to try to get the attention of Congress and the need and the desire to provide long-term certainty for the industry to get it done as soon as possible. Uh, It didn't happen as quickly as we had hoped, but uh, we're enormously relieved and thrilled by what Congress has proposed and and hopeful to get to the president for his signature before the end of this week. And that is essentially a five-year extension of uh, the $1 per gallon uh, Blender's credit for uh, biodiesel producers. Two of those years are obviously retroactive because it's been expired for two years, so 18 and 19. Uh, but three years of prospective certainty for this industry um, is going to do exactly what we have been uh, preaching to Congress, and that is provide certainty to the producers, to the feedstock providers, to develop additional feedstocks to the to the consumers and also to the blenders. So we couldn't be happier.
1: I'm sure you would have liked even longer, but still, this is more certainty than you've had in maybe since the biodiesel tax credit was established.
0: That's right. We haven't had a, a prospective tax credit at the start of the year since 2016. We haven't had three years of of prospective tax credit since it was first enacted uh, back in 2005. So, we we, we feel like uh, we we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to our congressional champions. Uh, particularly those in the Iowa delegation led by Senator Grassley, Senator Ernst, who was on the phone with the president, uh, talking to him about the importance of the tax credit to to Representative Finkenauer, who led uh, 40-plus Democrats in in, uh, making sure that uh, Speaker Pelosi knew this was a priority uh, for them. So uh, this wouldn't have happened without kind of the doggedness of a handful of our uh, strongest champions, but also the same folks who understand the importance of this industry and this policy uh, to the success of the industry and what it does for biodiesel producers but also for soybean farmers.
1: Kurt if you would explain again why it is so critical for the biodiesel industry and what has happened without the tax credit being in place?
0: Well because our, our, our tax incentive is a transactional tax incentive and it has always come back uh, retroactively. Our producers uh, price are forced to price in The value of that tax credit when they sell the fuel. So going back to January 1st of 2018, they were uh, selling uh, biodiesel with contracts that built in the price of that that, uh, tax credit coming back. So they've essentially been selling at a loss since then, carrying that financial burden. And what that means is, you know, we had a lot of companies, REG is one, that announced that they were putting on hold um, expansions of biodiesel uh, facilities because they didn't have the cash to to, to go through with them because it was all tied up in uh, the tax credit. We've had uh, at least 10 plants across the country that have uh, either shut their uh, doors or significantly ramped back uh, production because of the uncertainty. So my expectation is, you know, with, with three years of prospective tax credit being made whole from the last two, many of these projects will now uh, be kicked into high gear. I'm, I'm hoping plants will reopen, and I'm excited to see if we, you know, we'll get additional uh, production capacity online, and what that means is additional markets for America's soybean farmers and that soybean oil, which I think at this time uh, you would agree is, is a critical thing for our farmers to have given uh, kind of the disruption in their trade markets.
1: We're talking with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, you touched on it there, but I was wondering how long do you think we'll see that re before we see that rebound for the industry how long do we before we feel the impact of the uh, biodiesel tax credit being back in place
0: that's a great question um i I don't have a specific answer for you i haven't had uh, the opportunity to talk to our a couple of our producers who who've uh, shut their doors to get a sense i think they're going to have to kind of look at the the economics the market's going to have to digest this This might take a month or two before folks figure out kind of the real world impact and what it means for their bottom line and and going uh, forward. You know, we've got a conference in, in Tampa in January where I'm hopeful that we'll have many of our members there. So we'll get a lot better sense of kind of what this means for the industry, both near and long term.
1: Yeah, I look forward to being at your conference and we be broadcasting from there, and that'll be a, a big topic of conversation, won't it? I mean, I've been talking about how this year is ending so much better than it started for uh, ag and uh, more optimism going into 2020. This is one of the key parts of that optimism.
0: That's right. It's it's unfortunate I'm not going to criticize Congress because they're at the end of the day, they're getting done what that they needed to get done. Uh I would just I would just say to them, you know, if you if you were able to do these policies uh sooner with that prospectivity, it it would have a much bigger bang for the buck of what the taxpayer is is expending in this area. Uh you know, I'm not I'm not critical that to today's a day to, to celebrate and, and and be pleased with this. Hopefully it uh it gets across the finish line uh, this week before uh before the government funding runs out and we don't have any other hiccups. I would, you know, I've, I've implored your implored your listeners to, uh, you know, weigh in with their members of Congress every time we've talked in the past. I would do the same this time when it gets across the finish line uh, for the folks who recognize the value that this has to, to weigh in with their member of Congress with a, a letter or a note of thanks uh, over the holidays for them getting this done across and, and finished uh, uh, in time.
1: Yeah, I, I've been calling this uh, better late than never. It's frustrating that it took so long, but better late than never
0: absolutely right i agree with you a hundred percent
1: and you know uh when you look at um the struggle this has been uh, i hope now people will realize as ever as people are talking about the environment and, and green movements and things like that to you don't always have to go out and create something new uh when in many cases you have something right now that you should embrace and that's the biofuels industry
0: that's right and we've we were forced to do a lot of education over the over the last uh, eighteen months with with new members and members who were unfamiliar with our industry you know we're we're hoping that we laid the foundation for a better understanding of the kind of the here and now uh, fuels industry that is is working every day to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to to reduce our dependence on foreign oil uh, and hopefully that'll pay dividends. You know, in in future years, as Congress and the and the government works on on carbon policies to re, you know to reduce carbon in our transportation sector, um, it, it it was a lot of effort, uh, but that effort has to continue, and we're, we're hopeful that we can kind of build on that foundation of of the work that we did uh, in educating them on the tax credit over the last eighteen months.
1: The biodiesel industry has proven its uh, ability to produce when given the opportunity with the, with the tax credit. Uh, I would think now we could see a real period of growth for the industry.
0: We're hopeful that's the case. Now we do have uh, one remaining uh, policy headwind with respect to the renewable fuel standard. Uh, we expect to see uh, EPA's rule for 2020 and 2021 volumes under that program yet this week uh we're we're concerned that it's not going to be uh, as positive as it could be particularly given this president's commitment to america's farmers to support biofuels and the renewable fuel standard Uh, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get to it but my my expectation is we're going to be disappointed um, as early as tomorrow with what epa proposes in terms of uh, both volumes and Uh, their efforts to address waived gallons from the smaller finer exemptions that have been such a big issue the last three years.
1: Yeah, that will be an ongoing issue for sure as we go into 2020. But uh, you, you have to feel better with the biodiesel tax credit that you're in a better position to deal with that moving forward than you have been.
0: Absolutely, without a doubt. You know, as a as an industry I feel like we've been fighting on three fronts, whether it's reinstatement of the tax credit Uh, defending the integrity of the Renewable Fuel Standard, and then fighting uh, subsidized and dumped product from from foreign countries. You know, I'm heading into the holidays this year, uh, hopeful that uh, tax credit will be resolved and and providing some certainty for at least a handful of years out in the future. The trade cases seem to be uh, holding and and turning positive. So, you know, if I can can spend more of the the industry's time and efforts and, and advocacy on one issue, the renewable fuel standard, I think I think will be a lot more successful.
1: Then it's an ongoing effort to creating even more markets for biodiesel, more uses, create that demand.
0: That's absolutely right. We've got a whole bunch of uh soybean growers up in New York uh city this week that are learning about uh the 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 requirements and the the mandates in New York City for biodiesel in their fleets as well as the new market opportunity of bioheat in the home heating oil. So we're doing, we're doing our work to make sure that there's going to be markets for this fuel. We just need to make sure we can, we can produce the fuel um, and, and uh, satisfy those demands.
1: Well, I tell you what, Kurt, I look forward to uh, getting together with you and the biodiesel industry in Tampa in January. Hey, being in Tampa in January is a good thing when you're from the Midwest anyway. But the, <laughs> That's right. But the tone of the meeting should, should just be so much more positive with this news on the tax extension.
0: I think you're exactly right. I know we've got a lot of relieved uh, producers who have been hanging on by their fingernails the last couple weeks and months. Um, I think they're, they're thrilled with this outcome, uh, uh, presuming it gets through before the end of this week. Uh, they have a lot to be thankful for.
1: Very good. Kurt, thank you very much. Always appreciate uh, talking with you and the updates you've given us throughout the year. We'll look forward to talking again soon. Merry Christmas and uh, happy holidays to you.
0: Same to you, Mike. Appreciate it very much.
1: Take care. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Finally, some good news on the front of the uh, tax credit for the biodiesel industry. They've been struggling without it, and now they have some certainty for a few years and can move forward. Stay with us. much more to come here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
3: The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credense soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, Creden soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
1: We're going to get some interesting outlook and analysis now for the beef industry moving into 2020. We're joined by Don Close, senior animal protein analyst for Rabo AgriFinance. Don, thanks for joining us again. What do you see happening with uh, beef production in North America moving into 2020?
5: Good morning, Mike. I I think for the for 2020, uh, domestic beef production is going to be very close to steady. Um, we look for say our on-feed numbers, I think there's a very good chance USDA will revise that calf crop number down a little bit uh, in the Jan 1 inventory report. Just because of all the weather, that should uh, tighten up our available supplies of cattle outside of feed yards, provide some support to the feeder market, and, and shorten up our fed cattle supply for the coming
1: year. Don, we're, you're, you're cutting in and out on us a little bit, so I don't know if you can uh, readjust uh, the phone there a little bit or not. We'll try to get a little better signal. But let's talk about right. there, there, there are a lot of things going on here as far as global demand and supply. Uh, kind of give us uh, your thoughts on that.
5: The, uh, the global market is absolutely on fire. Uh, the, the quantities of protein that are going to China uh, are stimulating that market uh australian drought situation we're looking for australian beef production to be down 15 percent this coming year because of weather Uh, more of the new zealand product is going to china more brazil products going to china and uh and that by that is going to ultimately affect the u.s market
1: and and how so i mean we're talking about kind of shifting a lot of things around here so this this could he even impact uh, the fast food industry here in the U.S. Couldn't it?
5: I think there's uh, I think there's really high probability of a changing fast food market, and really what we're talking about is the quantity of manufacturing beef that goes to uh, the patty makers, the, the beef grinders. Uh, that Australian New Zealand product delivered to the U.S. is currently trading at a seventy to seventy-five cents. Uh, a pound premium to U.S. Domestic 90. As as our cow beef seasonally will peak here late November, early December, um, we shorten up our domestic supplies of lean beef. Uh, That market's really going to get exciting. When that occurs, that forces those grinders to go into uh, lean cuts from our fed beef supply that helps the fed beef cutout. So. That's going to be a big feature throughout uh, 2020. I think there's high probability you'll see the uh, the QSR restaurants, first off, change up the, the mix of uh, value meals that they're offering, and I think there's a very high chance that they'll end up just uh, across-the-board price increases on burgers for it's all over with.
1: Hmm. We're talking with Don Close, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Rabo Agri Finance. What we're seeing overall globally, Don, right, is a huge demand for protein. We, we talk a lot about uh, the African swine fever situation in China. That certainly has a big impact. But just a, a growing demand globally for protein is, uh, is a big story going into 2020.
5: You're absolutely correct. And when we look at uh, the quantities of bees going into China, uh, going into Southeast Asia, we see the emergence of that middle class. That increased beef demand was well underway before the ASF situation became so critical. So, our view is that even when—and we're talking three to five, maybe as extreme of ten years down the road before China gets the hog situation under control—but even with that aside, we're seeing more beef demand in that uh, in across Asia. Uh, as that uh, economy builds and you've got uh, more people's ability to buy beef in their diet,
1: what are we seeing as far as domestic demand for beef here in the United States?
5: It's been an it's been an incredible year, uh, and the interesting part about that: the higher the quality, the better the demand. So, as our our economy has the low unemployment rates, higher income levels. Uh, consumers have certainly been willing to spend some, some of that disposable income on beef. You know, our economy, is it going to get any better than it is today? I, I've got doubts with that. I don't know that uh, we're really ag- against recessionary fears, at least as of yet. But uh, at this time, domestic demand has been very, very good.
1: Historically, beef, probably more than other uh, protein products uh, is there's a connection with the economy, right? The better the economy, usually the better beef demand is.
5: Hands down, that's true. Now, typically what we see when that economy tightens is beef demand will typically hold relatively stable. But as consumers' budgets tighten, what they're willing to do is trade down on the quality or the cuts of beef that they're buying. And so – I'm, at this juncture, I'm not really concerned with, with domestic beef demand. But once the economy does tighten, I think we could see consumers geared down a, a degree of what items they're buying.
1: So your thoughts for 2020 if, for a livestock producer? Good year coming up?
5: I, I think it's a good year coming up. I, and and I, th- I, I don't want to oversell the deal. I think there's still a lot of problems. Uh, through the ag economy altogether. But I think as we go into the year, from what our initial views for 2020 were and and a lot of the frustration that producers have had in 2019, I do believe 2020 will be a better year.
1: Then we get some things fall into place on some trade deals. Uh, That could really help that even more.
5: You know, you touched on a big one there, and the fact that we just had the – the ratification on the uh, Japan trade agreement with the Japanese Parliament the day before yesterday. That's really good news for the U.S. market, and it's probably uh, been under under told or under reported that the fact that the U.S. is now on equal footing with the uh, UCTPP countries on tariffs that will really uh, support U.S. sales into Japan. Uh, we're still seeing incredible growth in South Korea, but uh, that, that part of our export yep. picture is looking brighter.
1: That's a bright spot going into 2020 for sure. Thank you, Don. That's Don Close with Bravo AgriFinance. Thanks for joining us on AOA.